0: Our Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 16 this evening. The word of the Lord. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid, but I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you. I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city the elders and the leaders who lived in the city did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people, and the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king, So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The new covenant reading is taken from the letter of James, James chapter four, beginning at verse one. We'll be reading through verse 10. This evening, the Word of our God. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. This will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. This is my Father's world, Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. In tonight's passage, we see just how wrong this world can seem. As a truly righteous man, a part of the very small remnant left in Israel, who seeks to love and honor Yahweh and to put his word into practice in his life, is murdered by a covetous king and an utterly evil and malicious queen. Now next week, Lord willing, we will be reminded that in spite of the evil we experience in this world, Almighty God is really in charge. Indeed, as the final stanza of that hymn goes, This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. A significant part of the Christian life is remembering that this final stanza is true, even when we cannot see that it is. And all that we can see is how strong the wrong so often appears. We're going to look at tonight's passage under five main headings. First, bad business. Second, covetousness leads to death. Third, the poison of passive men. Fourth, the ascent of darkness. And fifth, Ahab gets what he has coveted. Let me give those to you again. First, bad business. Second, covetousness leads to death. Third, the poison of passive men. Fourth, the ascent of darkness. And fifth, Ahab gets what he coveted. In order to fully get what is going on in tonight's passage, we need to remind ourselves that Ahab is not only the most wicked king in Israel's history, he has also been the object of astonishing kindness and mercy on the part of the living God. Uh, Ahab's and his people, right, not just Ahab, but the people of Israel, they do not truly repent, even after the Lord shows up on Mount Carmel and displays with astonishing power that he and he alone is God. Nevertheless, the Lord sends rain and brings an end to the famine and sends crops to them once again. And when the vast Syrian army comes against Ahab and the people of Israel, not once, but twice, the living God miraculously delivers that vast army into Ahab's hands. And we should remember that Ahab knew that it was the Lord who had done this. For one thing, Ahab had offered to become Ben-Hadad's vassal, that is, his subordinate ruler, who would pay him tribute every year. You know, take my silver, take my gold, just don't wipe me out. Because Ahab knew that in his own human power, there was no possible way that he could resist Ben-Hadad and this massive army. Furthermore, the Lord had sent prophets to Ahab before both of the battles to tell him what he was going to do in advance. So not only has the Lord shown astonishing mercy to Ahab and Israel, Ahab knows it's the Lord who has done these very things. Nevertheless, Ahab does not bother to consult with the Lord after he wins the second battle about what he should do. He simply acts as though he can do whatever he wants because he's king, and therefore he spares the life of Ben-Hadad, a man that the Lord had devoted to destruction. Now we find Ahab, far removed from the field of battle, enjoying a time of ease. The rains had returned a few years ago, and the northern kingdom was growing strong. It was growing prosperous as well. The threat from Syria has been eliminated, at least for a while, and the land is enjoying rest from its enemies. Why would the Lord show this sort of astonishing mercy to a king as wicked as Ahab? How do you answer that question. Why would the Lord show such astonishing mercy to any person, but in this case a king, as wicked as Ahab? What we have to acknowledge is: is the only ultimate answer for such a question is that mercy is found in the character of God himself. It's certainly not found in Ahab or in Israel, and the Lord is under no obligation to show it. Nevertheless, I am reminded of Paul's words to the church in Rome from Romans chapter two. Paul writes, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's kindness to sinners is intended to lead us to repentance. But if we remain hard-hearted against God's kindness, we are in fact keeping up wrath against the day of wrath. The question we have right now is, which will it be for Ahab? Will he repent? Or will he continue to rebel against God and therefore suffer his just judgment? Perhaps we're going to discover... He does a bit of both. Verse 1. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Uh, This verse introduces one of the godly remnant in Israel, one of the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And he is in a very small minority. The author of 1 Kings wants us to remember that Naboth is a flesh and blood human being and not merely a prop for us to actually just talk about Ahab. In 16 verses, Naboth is mentioned in 14 of them by name. That is, he's not simply a guy going through. The author of 1 Kings wants us to know that this godly member of the tiny remnant is important to Yahweh. Yahweh. Now, Jezreel is a town about 23 miles northeast of Samaria, located at the east end of the fertile Jezreel Valley. And it was Nabah's hometown. In fact, it was not just his hometown. Presumably, this particular plot of land would have been in his family from the time the Lord conquers Canaan, when Joshua first leads the people into the land, for hundreds of years up until now. As you read through this passage, you'll see over and over again, he's described as a Jezreelite, making it clear this is his town. Or in at least one place, it's described as his city. As opposed, of course, to Ahab, who simply has a spare house there. Unfortunately for Naboth, it was also a place where Ahab had, in fact, built a spare palace outside of his capital city of Samaria. In a very unusual turn of phrase, Ahab is called the king of Samaria. Right? He's really the king of Israel. Samaria is just the capital. I think the author of 1 Kings is trying to give us this very strong contrast. This is Naboth's home. He belongs there. This is just a place where Ahab happens to set up an extra house. He doesn't belong here. John Woodhouse points out, Ahab's roots, even in Samaria, were shallow. He may have lived there, but his father had purchased the place only six years or so before Ahab became king. Now, we've accounted Jezreel once before. I wonder if you remember when that was. But, but you know, when um, Elijah goes to Mount Carmel, And there's this great contest between the prophets of Baal and the true and living God, Yahweh, and his prophet Elijah. Jezebel is in this palace in Jezreel. That's where she hears the news about what has happened. And it is from Jezreel, from this spare palace that they have, that she pronounces her oath, her self-maledictory oath, that she will have Elijah put to death or she would hope that the gods would do to her and more. And therefore she sent that message from Jezreel to Elijah. I think perhaps we ought to be thinking right away that this is kind of an ominous place for this story to take place. And it is here in Jezreel where Ahab will behave so horribly, but the Lord's judgment upon him and upon his house will finally begin to fall. We come to a section that I, I call bad business. Uh, look at verses two and three with me. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Um, Ahab's the king. Kings are used to getting what they want. Uh, Ahab, perhaps more more than most, didn't really care so much about what it was going to cost other people to give him what he wants. And one day, the king simply looks over at his neighbor's property and he says, you know what? I'd like that field. I mean, there's a vineyard in it, but I could put a vegetable garden in. Or actually, another way of translating that is an herb garden." That is, this isn't a really important thing for the king, and whether it's a vegetable garden or an herb garden, uh, we trust that the king of Israel has no difficulty getting vegetables to eat or herbs to season his meals. But he simply says, that would be nice for me, I want it. And as we're going to see, he doesn't simply say, I think that would be good, he sets his heart on it and he covets it. So the king goes to Naboth and says, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Now pause and ask yourself this question. If one of your neighbors came up to you and said, I want to buy this field that belongs to you, you don't even have a house sign, But it's your field. And they say, look, I'll give you a better field for it or I'll pay you a very full price for the field. What are you thinking? But these kind of questions are helpful for us to ask because we want to read the Bible in light of the reality of human experience. Well, what are you thinking? You might think, look, this property has been in my family for a couple of generations. No, we're just going to keep it. Or you might entertain the offer since they're going to offer you a very full price. You know, perhaps you saw your children play on the field when they were young and it was, you know, has some emotional attachments, but now you're just occasionally growing pumpkins and cabbages on it. And, you know, you could use that money for retirement. Here's what you wouldn't think. There's something wrong with my neighbor for making me this offer. After all, your neighbor is not trying to rip you off. Uh, Ahab here. I'm willing to pay top price for it. I'll give you a better vineyard than this one for it. So you wouldn't think there's anything wrong with your neighbor, and yet the Bible tells us that Ahab is wrong for doing this. So we have to ask ourselves why. What's different about this situation than in our own day with our own neighbors? Well, look at verse three again with me. Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord Forbid, but I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, Naboth probably did not like Ahab very much. I mean, uh, Naboth is a Yahweh worshiper. Um, This is the king who introduces Baal worship into Israel. His wife, with the king's approval, or at least passing acceptance, has killed a large number of the true prophets of Yahweh, and in fact, Ahab has erected a temple for Baal worship in Samaria. So, I mean, Naboth is not a, a fan. If they were voting, there's no votes in ancient Israel, but he's not running for office, but if they were voting, uh, Naboth would have pulled the lever for a different candidate for king. But that's not why Naboth refuses to sell his property to Ahab. See, we tend to think of our own property, of our land, as being just that. Our property, to do with as we wish. Now, if you live in New Hampshire, you have a better shot at that than if you live in Massachusetts. But we tend to think of property as something we own, we can develop it, we can use it, or we can sell it as we wish. But who owns the land in ancient Israel? God does. Every square inch of Israel belongs to the Lord the whole way the land was distributed in Israel was based on this fundamental understanding. The Lord owns the land and he lets people use it, that they're gonna be stewards of the land. And it's not just that the Lord is making clear he owns everything, because he owns everything we have too. The purpose of the land laws in Israel was to preserve everyone's line in Israel. You could trace it. No one would be cut off because they lost all their property and nobody would be permanently impoverished in Israel because land is wealth, and they could always get their land back. Uh, Even if someone had to sell their property because they became so poor, their nearest kinsman could buy it back. And if no one appears to buy it back, every year of Jubilee, without any money chasing hands, the property goes back to the original family. That was how God managed the land in Israel. Did it for the people's good. He did it to maintain that no family in Israel would be permanently poor, but also that there would be a clear line of succession showing that for generations, individual families had remained alive in Israel. That is not Ahab's view. Now, you have to understand that Ahab knows the law. Ahab grew up in Israel. But not just that, he was the chief judge in Israel. He heard cases. He knew how the law worked. But he didn't care. He wanted to buy the land anyway. And as a permanent possession, he wasn't planning on doing this until the year of Jubilee. See, the difference here is Ahab doesn't love the Lord, and therefore he doesn't care about the Lord's laws, as long as on a human basis he can cut what he thinks is a fair deal with Naboth and get what he wants. Naboth, on the other hand, loves the Lord, and therefore he loves the Lord's law. That's the critical difference that is going on here in this passage. Ahab and Naboth have fundamentally different theologies of the land and it just flows out of the fact that Naboth loves the Lord and Ahab does not. Please note the precise way that Naboth phrases his response. He does not say, I cannot sell my inheritance. See, if you word it that way, it's still my inheritance. What does he say? I cannot sell the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth understood that he was part of a long chain of people who had a responsibility to those who had come before him and a responsibility to the generations who came after him. And all he was doing was caring for this land and enjoying its fruit, but caring for this land while he was here on earth. So Naboth says, the Lord forbid, but I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. As I said, in all likelihood, this plot of land in Jezreel had been passed down Naboth's family from the time that Israel conquered the land under the leadership of Joshua. He was a steward of the land on behalf of his fathers and on behalf of the generations to come. Now the ball was squarely in Ahab's court. Ahab's court. Verse 4, and Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, on the one hand, Ahab does not force Naboth to give him the property. He doesn't do anything directly like that right? Um, actually, it turns out that Ahab is a remarkably passive character. He hardly does anything simply of his own free will. Perhaps he knew that so crassly disobeying the law of God would generate a lot of PR for him. And, uh, you know, kings actually have to care about PR because if they don't have enough popular support, they have to have a bigger army and do everything by force. On the other hand, Ahab does not simply accept Naboth's decision. Instead, he goes back to his house, vexed and sullen over what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. In fact, he turned his face away and wouldn't even eat. What's going on? Well, first, we should remind ourselves of what Ahab was after. His neighbor's vineyard that he wanted for a vegetable gardener or an herb garden. Well, that could be nice. You might want something like that in your house. But it's hardly the thing that a king of a country ought to be overly concerned about, right? He he wasn't going to lack vegetables and herbs. The issue was he had simply coveted it, and therefore he wanted it. And because he wanted it, and his desires were not being satisfied, he became so upset he wouldn't even eat. Now, that looks really ugly on him, but I want to tell you it looks just as ugly on us You know, um, if we covet things, the things can actually, rationally speaking, be really, really unimportant. But they can really upset us because we're simply not getting what we want or not getting our way. Here's the thing. Ahab became obsessed with the little thing that he could not have. He coveted it. And of course, being king... He was not used to people saying no to him. By the way, a good thing, parents, um, sometimes your children will get upset when you have to keep telling them no over things. It is really important your children learn that no is a perfectly good answer, right? They they don't wait to find out when they're 18, 19, or 20 that people are going to say no to them. They need to learn how to be content when people say no to them. Now, one of the problems with coveting is we can easily fool ourselves into thinking it doesn't hurt anyone else. That's a very popular idea, by the way, in modern America, that the only things that are bad are things that you can identify that it hurts someone else. And as long as no one else is being hurt, people say, well, that's fine. Well, you know, if you want to have a libertarian view of civic law, that might be fine. But it's not fine with God. It is not fine in our attitudes, and actually it's also rather naive. Covetousness ultimately always hurts not only ourselves, but other people. Because the Lord loves us, he makes clear in his word that the idea that covetousness doesn't hurt anyone else is a lie. As he tells us in his letter to the letter of James, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And that's what we have in tonight's passage. Ahab's illicit desire for a field that's actually important to Naboth, but really insignificant to him, results in the death of a righteous man. Ahab's obsession with his neighbor will not end until someone is dead. And I say, let that be a warning to us that we need to nip our sinful desires in the bud. You know, the Puritans had an expression for this, which was keep short accounts of your sin with God. The right time to repent of your sin is as soon as your conscience is pricked and you know you're doing it. You know, you, you don't carry sin around like it's a house cat and pet it and think, you know, I can hold on to this for a couple weeks or a couple months because nothing bad's happening. In fact, God tells us that you might think it's a house cat, but really what it is is a crouching lion seeking to devour you. Nip it in the bud, by God's grace. Uh, Verse 4 raises a question, and it's one that you could have easily missed. It says that Ahab went into his house. And the question is, which one? Uh, For most of us, there's only one answer. We have one house. But Ahab has a palace here in Jezreel. He has another one in Samaria. And you might just naturally think, well, it's all taking place in Jezreel. But actually, there are good reasons to think that when he becomes vexed in soul and he actually returns to Samaria and he's in his palace in the capital. One of the reasons we ought to think that is when Jezebel hatches her plot, she sends letters to the elders of the city, to the leaders of the city, And then after they carry out her plot, they send letters back to her. That that hardly seems like the thing you'd need to do if you're literally right next door to Naboth and his vineyard. And also, by the way, that distance would have given them a type of plausible deniability, but they weren't actually involved. In any case, Ahab is letting sinful desires consume him which prompts his wife to spring into action. Look at verses 5 through 7 with me. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, I've titled this section, with some trepidation, um, The Poison of Passive Men. And so that needs some qualification. I am not suggesting that to be a godly man means you must be out there conquering the world. I am not suggesting that as godly husbands and fathers in this church that you need to make all the important decisions in your family. That's wrong, right? God, if you have a a godly wife, God has made you equal joint heirs in Christ and you're to share in each other's gifts, right? So, So this is not an issue about men doing everything, or men, you know, just laying down the law while their wives um, just passively say, yes dear, yes dear, to everything they say. That's clearly unbiblical. And it would be a gross character caricature of the biblical portrait of a godly marriage. Nevertheless, there are problems which flow from men being unable to make decisions who force their wives to constantly step up to bail them out of the consequences of their own passivity. Men, please take that to heart. There are problems which flow from men being unable to make decisions who fo- force their wives to constantly step up to bail them out of the consequences of their own passivity. Now, if we step back a bit, we could say Ahab is a remarkably passive king. In almost every scene that we've seen, it's the other character who takes the lead. It is Ahab and Jezebel who are driving the story. It is Ben-Hadad and these other unnamed prophets who are driving the story. And Ahab simply responds to them. For the most part. He's a remarkably passive man, particularly for someone who's the head of state. Even here where it is clearly his own idea to purchase Naboth's vineyard, Ahab becomes utterly paralyzed when Naboth simply says no. Now in our translation of verse five, Jezebel asks, why is your spirit so vexed? Uh, The Hebrew is actually a bit sharper than that. Uh, Jezebel is doing more than seeking information. It's not a polite why. So uh, some of the very best Hebrew scholars in the world have made suggestions like this. Why in the world? This is a very different idea, not simply why. Why in the world? Or what on earth are you doing? See, Jezebel's going, what kind of king are you? You're the king of the entire nation, and you're sulking because your neighbor says no. It's actually a bit of a put-down, and actually a fairly strong put-down, her husband. There's something worth noting in Ahab's response as well. If we don't pay too much attention, it'll seem like Ahab is just explaining to Jezebel what happened. He wanted to buy Naboth's vineyard, and Naboth refused. But look closely at the end of verse 6 with me. The end of verse 6. In Ahab's retelling of events, he has Naboth answer, I will not give you my vineyard. But that, of course, is wrong. What Naboth had said is, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. See, even now, Ahab is cutting two things out of his answer. He's cutting out the, Lord forbid, the religious aspect, and he's cutting out the biblical law that drove Naboth's decision. He still thinks the property is actually Naboth, just a commodity, that for being a stubborn guy, he's refusing to sell him. As Walter Meyer puts it, these aspects of Naboth's reply, that is, the religious aspects, had faded into the background in Ahab's mind. Any sensitivity toward the religion and ethics of Naboth had evaporated. In his self-centeredness, All that Ahab could think was I made him a fair offer. He refused me. I didn't get my way. Jezebel, of course, couldn't care less. Instead, she takes another dig at her husband. Do you now govern Israel? What kind of king are you? What kind of king are you that you allow yourself to be pushed around by an insignificant subject? Let me show you how it is done. Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And the Hebrew construction makes the I emphatic. Jezebel is saying, look, you're a pretty pathetic king, but I, yes, I, Jezebel, will show you how it's done. I'll get you the vineyard. Now, Ahab knew that there was no legal way to force Naboth to sell him the property. He certainly knew that Jezebel was going to do something grossly immoral and probably illegal. And he does nothing. So not have the poison of passive men. At the very least, he allows evil to be done right under his nose. And it's hard for me to imagine that he wasn't happy that someone else was willing to do the dirty work but he himself was unwilling to do. This sort of passivity is toxic in a king. The beloved is also toxic in a husband. Verses 8 through 10. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. I have called this section The Ascent of Darkness, and it is easy to see why. Um, Jezebel forges official correspondence in the king's name and illegally seals them with the king's seal. kind of wonder how often she'd done that before. Uh, I don't know if this is the first time she would ever do something like this. This actually fits with her character. She sealed them with a seal, and she sent the letter to the elders and leaders who live with Naboth in his city. Uh, the details of the letter are frankly staggering. First, Jezebel has him proclaim a fast, you know, a religious event. There's something important going on in the town or maybe in all Israel. Uh, we got to get the people together to worship Yahweh. But, of course, Jezebel hates Yahweh. It's all complete hypocrisy. She hates the Lord. She doesn't simply indifferent. She hates Yahweh, but she's willing to use religion to get what she wants. I think perhaps there's a warning for us. Um, sometimes Christians get very excited when uh, national political figures in America kind of nod in the direction of Christianity. We ought to remember that politicians, some of them are serious Christians, there's no doubt about that, The politicians are quite happy to use religion to get what they want. And um, they, many of them really hope that we don't look too closely at them to see the difference between whether or not they're worshipping the Lord or they're simply using religion for their own political gain. Second, It is striking that Jezebel does not need to directly come up with a couple of scoundrels herself who will do the queen's bidding. Did you get she writes the letters to the elders and leaders of the city? You know, coming up with scoundrels is not hard. Um, In Washington, D.C., there's a veritable army of people who will lie on demand on television for their party. I mean, some of the stuff is just insane, the one of the presidents or congressmen or someone running for office will announce some stupid policy that if you look at it, you're going, this is just throwing money away. And people will come out on television and talk about how this is going to create 100,000 new jobs or some ridiculous figure that is not possibly plausible. And they say it with a straight face. And a lot of these people have, you know, they're articulate. They have degrees from good schools. And all they're doing is lying on demand to make their party look good, and then they'll say, well, what are you, opposed to 100,000 new jobs? And if someone's trying to point out, it's not gonna do that, well, you're, you're just a naysayer, right? This is not an unusual thing in the history of the world. We have it, other countries have it. Anywhere there is power and money, power and money is addictive, and there are people that are willing to virtually sell their souls to be around that sort of power, and to have access to that type of money. That should not surprise us. But well, What's surprising here is it's the elders of the city. These are elders who know Naboth. This, after all, is Naboth's town. He's a Jezreelite. And Jezreel's not a huge city. They know him. They know his parents. They know this land has been in the family of Naboth since before they can remember. And yet, without hesitation, Jezebel sends them instructions to fraudulently put in the death, to trump up charges in Yahweh's name, confident that they will do it. And as far as we know, they don't bat an eye. They carry out the queen's plans. I think that shows us just how corrupt Israel has become. That even the elders and leaders of the city are happy to go along in order to curry the queen's favor, in what is nothing more than judicial murder, or nothing less than judicial murder. Third, the plan is to set two scoundrels next to Naboth who would fabricate the charge that they had heard him blaspheme both God and the king. Now, given Naboth's righteous character and the fact that this is not a huge town, everybody would have known it's a lie, (laughs) Right. I mean, there's a lot of people in the city that you could imagine are going to blaspheme the name of the living God. Naboth is clearly not one of them, but they don't care. They're going to carry out this plan anyway in the hopes of currying the favor of the queen, or at least not getting her displeasure. It is pretty shocking that the leaders and elders of the city could so easily be co-opted into a plot which as I say is nothing short of judicial murder. And yet I cannot help but think of how the high priests at the time of Christ did the same thing. They, however, desperately seeking for false witnesses, got plenty of false witnesses to come forward, but the false witnesses kept contradicting each other. They couldn't come up with two that would bring the same charge. But you have to remember they sent... Jesus saw to Pontius Pilate anyway, even though they didn't even have a formal charge and asked Pilate to put him to death as an evildoer. Fourth, uh, this isn't in this evening's passage, but we are told in 2 Kings that Jezebel also had Naboth's sons put to death as well. Now, from the standpoint of just realpolitik, she had to put the sons to death. They're going to inherit the property. Right? But you have to see how wicked that is. Naboth is put to death, and his posterity is being put to death. His seed is being wiped out in Israel. Also, that her husband can get her herb garden. Uh, we should say, because you know a little bit about the law, that land can be redeemed. If you were a near kinsman redeemer to Naboth, and you saw what Jezebel has done to Naboth and to his sons, how likely are you to approach Ahab the king and say, I'm the nearest redeemer. I wanna redeem the land. I think the answer is, nobody is gonna step forward and do that. Jezebel obviously knew that fact as well. Well, that's the plan, and the elders of the city carry it out, right? Orders given, Orders taken, Naboth is dead. And so they send uh, butter back to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Uh, this brings us to our final section. Ahab in fact gets what he has coveted. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. I find it interesting that Jezebel simply tells ahab that naboth is dead and not that he's been stoned to death and not that she had anything to do with it um i kind of think this is along the lines of what we do in the modern age when we talk about plausible deniability that is ahab can never be accused successfully that he was involved with the plot the king's hands are innocent as it were uh because but of course that's just a silly ruse i mean anybody could figure this out But the queen was behind it, and the king knew what was going on. And the king just doesn't ask any questions. Now, that sort of plausible deniability may work in the political world in this present age. I don't really know. But it does not work with God, right? What seems clever on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Yet, not surprisingly, Ahab does not ask too many questions. In fact, he doesn't ask any questions at all. He has been coveting his neighbor's field. Now he simply goes and takes it. If there are any other godly people in Jezreel, all they can see with their eyes is that the wrong seems oh so strong. That's their circumstances. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to see that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. But, beloved, we do not live in next week. We live in today. So what do we do when it seems that darkness has the upper hand? How do we live joyfully to the glory of God when it seems that truth is always on the scaffold while wrong is always on the throne Well, given that we follow a crucified savior, we should not be surprised that sometimes we are gonna suffer in this world and that our brothers and sisters are gonna suffer as well, even suffer to the point of death for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is only part of the answer. A critical part of the answer is that we need to look beyond today to eternity. As Asaph prays in the 73rd Psalm, "'As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind.' Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Is that not a description of Ahab? I mean, he went through a rough patch there during the drought, but he's all these things, and life seems good to him. Do you understand what Asaph is saying? He's not just saying that that's bad. He's saying, I began to envy them, their circumstances. And beloved, you as a Christian can do the very same thing. You can want to follow God but also look at those who are trampling God's law underfoot and say, boy, I wish I had their money, their house, the opportunity they got by cheating. And you can be pulled in that way. You really can. That is, Ahab had coveted Naboth's field, but Asaph is confessing that he, beloved, I hope you realize this includes us, not not just Asaph, but that he is tempted to covet the Ahabs of this world, their material possessions, and their apparent success. He confesses that temptation in his own life. Asaph began to think, All in vain I have kept my heart clean, and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken, and rebuked every morning. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Now at last we are reminded of our Lord's words. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I mean, after all, in light of eternity, uh, our lives here are just here today and gone tomorrow. They don't stack up with life with God forever. But I'd like to close this evening not with that loss for the wicked, but the gain for those who cling to Jesus Christ. A a positive version of this truth that comes from Jim Elliot as he headed off to be a missionary to the Alka Indians. Beloved, this was a very dangerous mission, and many people had warned him that he was going to Quote: Waste his life by putting it at risk among these barbaric people. Before going off on this dangerous mission, Jim Elliot uttered these famous words: "He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose." Beloved Jim Elliot was right. Amen.